Section 45C of Volume 1C of History of England from the Invasion of Julius Caesar to the Revolution of 1688. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. History of England from the Invasion of Julius Caesar to the Revolution of 1688 by David Hume, Volume 1C, Section 45, Chapter 36, Part 2. The first bill passed by the Parliament was of a popular nature, and abolished every species of treason not contained in the statute of Edward III, and every species of felony that did not subsist before the first of Henry VIII. The Parliament next declared the Queen to be legitimate, ratified the marriage of Henry with Catherine of Aragon, and annulled the divorce pronounced by Cranmer, whom they greatly blamed on that account. No mention, however, is made of the Pope's authority as any ground of the marriage. All the statutes of King Edward with regard to religion were repealed by one vote. The attainder of the Duke of Norfolk was reversed, and this act of justice was more reasonable than the declaring of that attainder invalid without further authority. Many clauses of the Riot Act, passed in the late reign, were revived, a step which eluded in a great measure the popular statute enacted at the first meeting of Parliament. Notwithstanding the compliance of the two houses with the Queen's inclinations, they had still a reserve in certain articles, and her choice of a husband in particular was of such importance to national interest that they were determined not to submit tamely in that respect to her will and pleasure. There were three marriages concerning which it was supposed that Mary had deliberated after her accession. The first person proposed to her was Courtney, Earl of Devonshire, who being an Englishman nearly allied to the crown, could not fail of being acceptable to the nation, and as he was of an engaging person and address, he had visibly gained on the Queen's affections, and hints were dropped him of her favourable dispositions towards him. But that nobleman neglected these overtures, and seemed rather to attach himself to the Lady Elizabeth, whose youth and agreeable conversation he preferred to all the power and grandeur of her sister. This choice occasioned a great coldness in Mary towards Devonshire, and made her break out in a declared animosity against Elizabeth. The ancient quarrel between their mothers had sunk deep into the malignant heart of the Queen, and after the declaration made by Parliament in favour of Catherine's marriage, she wanted not a pretence for representing the birth of her sister as illegitimate. The attachment of Elizabeth to the reformed religion offended Mary's bigotry, and as the young princess had made some difficulty in disguising her sentiments, violent menaces had been employed to bring her to compliance. But when the Queen found that Elizabeth had obstructed her views in a point which perhaps touched her still more nearly, her resentment, excited by pride, 
no longer knew any bounds and the princess was visibly exposed to the greatest danger cardinal pole who had never taken priest's orders was another party proposed to the queen and there appeared many reasons to induce her to make choice of this prelate the high character of pole for virtue and humanity the great regard paid him by the catholic church of which he had nearly reached the highest dignity on the death of paul the third the queen's affection for the countess of salisbury his mother who had once been her governess the violent animosity to which he had been exposed on account of his attachment to the romish communion all these considerations had a powerful influence on mary but the cardinal was now in the decline of life and having contracted habits of study and retirement he was represented to her as unqualified for the bustle of a court and the hurry of business the queen therefore dropped all thoughts of that alliance but as she entertained a great regard for pole's wisdom and virtue she still intended to reap the benefit of his counsel in the administration of her government she secretly entered into a negotiation with Comendone, an agent of Cardinal Dandino, legate at Brussels. She sent assurances to the Pope, then Julius III, of her earnest desire to reconcile herself and her kingdoms to the Holy See, and she desired that Pole might be appointed legate for the performance of that pious office these two marriages being rejected the queen cast her eye towards the emperor's family from which her mother was descended and which during her own distresses had always afforded her countenance and protection charles v who a few years before was almost absolute master of germany had exercised his power in such an arbitrary manner that he gave extreme disgust to the nation who apprehended the total extinction of their liberties from the encroachments of that monarch religion had served him as a pretence for his usurpations and from the same principle he met with that opposition which overthrew his grandeur and dashed all his ambitious hopes morris elector of saxony enraged that the landgrave of hesse who by his advice and on his assurances had put himself into the emperor's hands should be unjustly detained a prisoner formed a secret conspiracy among the protestant princes and covering his intentions with the most artful disguises he suddenly marched his forces against charles and narrowly missed becoming master of his person the protestants flew to arms in every quarter and their insurrection aided by an invasion from france reduced the emperor to such difficulties that he was obliged to submit to terms of peace which ensured the independence of germany to retrieve his honour he made an attack on france and laying siege to metz with an army of a hundred thousand men he conducted the enterprise in person and seemed determined at all hazards to succeed in an undertaking which had fixed the attention of europe 
but the duke of guise who defended metz with a garrison composed of the bravest nobility of france exerted such vigilance conduct and valor that the siege was protracted to the depth of winter and the emperor found it dangerous to persevere any longer he retired with the remains of his army into the low countries much dejected with that reverse of fortune which in his declining years had so fatally overtaken him no sooner did charles hear of the death of edward and the accession of his kinswoman mary to the crown of england than he formed the scheme of acquiring that kingdom to his family and he hoped by this incident to balance all the losses which he had sustained in germany his son philip was a widower and though he was only twenty-seven years of age eleven years younger than the queen this objection it was thought would be overlooked and there was no reason to despair of her still having a numerous issue the emperor therefore immediately sent over an agent to signify his intentions to mary who pleased with the support of so powerful an alliance and glad to unite herself more closely with her mother's family to which she was ever strongly attached readily embraced the proposal norfolk arundel and paget gave their advice for the match and gardiner who was become prime minister and who had been promoted to the office of chancellor finding how mary's inclinations lay seconded the project of the spanish alliance at the same time he represented both to her and the emperor the necessity of stopping all further innovations in religion till the completion of the marriage he observed that the parliament amidst all their compliances had discovered evident symptoms of jealousy and seemed at present determined to grant no further concessions in favour of the catholic religion that though they might make a sacrifice to their sovereign of some speculative principles which they did not well comprehend or of some rights which seemed not of any great moment they had imbibed such strong prejudices against the pretended usurpations and exactions of the court of rome that they would with great difficulty be again brought to submit to its authority that the danger of resuming the abbey lands would alarm the nobility and gentry and induce them to encourage the prepossessions which were but too general among the people against the doctrine and worship of the catholic church that much pains had been taken to prejudice the nation against the spanish alliance and if that point were urged at the same time with further changes in religion it would hazard a general revolt and insurrection that the marriage being once completed would give authority to the queen's measures and enable her afterwards to forward the pious work in which she was engaged and that it was even necessary previously to reconcile the people to the marriage by rendering the conditions extremely favourable to the english and such as would be seen to ensure to them their independency and the entire possession of their ancient laws and privileges the emperor well acquainted with the prudence and experience of gardiner assented to all these reasons and he endeavoured to temper the zeal of mary 
by representing the necessity of proceeding gradually in the great work of converting the nation. Hearing that Cardinal Pole, more sincere in his religious opinions, and less guided by the maxims of human policy, after having sent contrary advice to the Queen, had set out on his journey to England, where he was to exercise his legantine commission. He thought proper to stop him at Dillingen, a town on the Danube, and he afterwards obtained Mary's consent for this detention. The negotiation for the marriage meanwhile proceeded apace, and Mary's intentions of espousing Philip became generally known to the nation. The commons, who hoped that they had gained the queen by the concessions which they had already made, were alarmed to hear that she was resolved to contract a foreign alliance, and they sent a committee to remonstrate in strong terms against that dangerous measure. To prevent further applications of the same kind, she thought proper to dissolve the Parliament. A convocation had been summoned at the same time with the Parliament, and the majority here also appeared to be of the court religion. An offer was very frankly made by the Romanists to dispute concerning the points controverted between the two communions, and as transubstantiation was the article which of all others they deemed the clearest, and founded on the most irresistible arguments, they chose to try their strength by defending it. The Protestants pushed the dispute as far as the clamour and noise of their antagonists would permit, and they fondly imagined that they had obtained some advantage, when in the course of the debate they obliged the Catholics to avow that, according to their doctrine, Christ had in his last supper held himself in his hand, and had swallowed and eaten himself. This triumph, however, was confined only to their own party. The Romanists maintained that their champions had clearly the better of the day, that their adversaries were blind and obstinate heretics, that nothing but the most extreme depravity of heart could induce men to contest such self-evident principles, and that the severest punishments were due to their perverse wickedness. So pleased were they with their superiority in this favourite point, that they soon after renewed the dispute at Oxford, and to show that they feared no force of learning or abilities, where reason was so evident on their side, they sent thither Cranmer, Latimer, and Ridley, under a guard, to try whether these renowned controversialists could find any appearance of argument to defend their baffled principles. The issue of the debate was very different from what it appeared to be a few years before, in a famous conference held at the same place during the reign of Edward. After the Parliament and Convocation were dismissed, the new laws with regard to religion, though they had been anticipated in most places by the zeal of the Catholics, countenanced by government, were still more openly put in execution. The mass was everywhere re-established, and marriage was declared to be incompatible with any spiritual office. It has been asserted by some writers that three-fourths of the clergy were at this time deprived of their livings, 
though other historians more accurate have estimated the number of sufferers to be far short of this proportion a visitation was appointed in order to restore more perfectly the mass and the ancient rites among other articles the commissioners were enjoined to forbid the oath of supremacy to be taken by the clergy on their receiving any benefice it is to be observed that this oath had been established by the laws of henry the eighth which were still in force this violent and sudden change of religion inspired the protestants with great discontent and even affected indifferent spectators with concern by the hardships to which so many individuals were on that account exposed but the spanish match was a point of more general concern and diffused universal apprehension for the liberty and independence of the nation to obviate all clamour the articles of marriage were drawn as favourable as possible for the interests and security and even grandeur of england it was agreed that though philip should have the title of king the administration should be entirely in the queen that no foreigner should be capable of enjoying any office in the kingdom that no innovation should be made in the english laws customs and privileges that philip should not carry the queen abroad without her consent nor any of her children without the consent of the nobility that sixty thousand pounds a year should be settled as her jointure that the male issue of this marriage should inherit together with england both burgundy and the low countries and that if don carlos philip's son by his former marriage should die and his line be extinct the queen's issue whether male or female should inherit spain sicily milan and all the other dominions of philip such was the treaty of marriage signed by count egmont and three other ambassadors sent over to england by the emperor these articles when published gave no satisfaction to the nation it was universally said that the emperor in order to get possession of england would verbally agree to any terms and the greater advantage there appeared in the conditions which he granted the more certainly might it be concluded that he had no serious intention of observing them that the usual fraud and ambition of that monarch might assure the nation of such a conduct and his son philip while he inherited these vices from his father added to them tyranny sullenness pride and barbarity more dangerous vices of his own that england would become a province and a province to a kingdom which usually exercised the most violent authority over all her dependent dominions that the netherlands milan sicily naples groaned under the burden of spanish tyranny and throughout all the new conquests in america there had been displayed scenes of unrelenting cruelty hitherto unknown in the history of mankind that the inquisition was a tribunal invented by that tyrannical nation and would infallibly with all their other laws and institutions be introduced into england and that the divided sentiments of the people with regard to religion would subject multitudes to this iniquitous tribunal 
and would reduce the whole nation to the most abject servitude. These complaints, being diffused everywhere, prepared the people for a rebellion, and had any foreign power given them encouragement, or any great man appeared to head them, the consequence might have proved fatal to the Queen's authority. But the King of France, though engaged in hostilities with the Emperor, refused to concur in any proposal for an insurrection, lest he should afford Mary a pretense for declaring war against him. And the more prudent part of the nobility thought that, as the evils of the Spanish alliance were only dreaded at a distance, matters were not yet fully prepared for a general revolt. Some persons, however, more turbulent than the rest, believed that it would be safer to prevent than to redress grievances, and they formed a conspiracy to rise in arms and declare against the Queen's marriage with Philip. Sir Thomas Wyatt proposed to raise Kent, Sir Peter Carew, Devonshire, and they engaged the Duke of Suffolk, by the hopes of recovering the crown for the Lady Jane, to attempt raising the Midland counties. Carew's impatience or apprehensions engaged him to break the concert, and to rise in arms before the day appointed. He was soon suppressed by the Earl of Bedford, and constrained to fly into France. On this intelligence, Suffolk, dreading an arrest, suddenly left the town with his brothers, Lord Thomas and Lord Leonard Grey, and endeavoured to raise the people in the counties of Warwick and Leicester, where his interest lay. But he was so closely pursued by the Earl of Huntingdon, at the head of three hundred horse, that he was obliged to disperse his followers, and being discovered in his concealment, he was carried prisoner to London. Wyatt was at first more successful in his attempt, and having published a declaration at Maidstone in Kent against the Queen's evil counsellors, and against the Spanish match, without any mention of religion, that people began to flock to his standard. The Dufoc, with Sir Henry Jernigan, was sent against him, at the head of the guards and some other troops, reinforced with five hundred Londoners commanded by Brett. And he came within sight of the rebels at Rochester, where they had fixed their headquarters. Sir George Harper here pretended to desert from them, but having secretly gained Brett, these two malcontents so wrought on the Londoners, that the whole body deserted to Wyatt, and declared that they would not contribute to enslave their native country. Norfolk, dreading the contagion of the example, immediately retreated with his troops, and took shelter in the city. After this proof of the disposition of the people, especially of the Londoners, who were mostly Protestants, Wyatt was encouraged to proceed. He led his forces to Southwark, where he required of the queen that she put the tower into his hands, should deliver four councillors as hostages, and in order to ensure the liberty of the nation, should immediately marry an Englishman. Finding that the bridge was secured against him, and that the city was overawed, he marched up to Kingston, where he passed the river with four thousand men, and returning towards London, 
hoped to encourage his partisans who had engaged to declare for him. He had imprudently wasted so much time at Southwark, and in his march from Kingston, that the critical season on which all popular commotions depend was entirely lost. Though he entered Westminster without resistance, his followers, finding that no person of note joined him, insensibly fell off, and he was at last seized near Temple Bar by Sir Maurice Barclay. Four hundred persons are said to have suffered for this rebellion. Four hundred more were conducted before the Queen with ropes about their necks, and falling on their knees received a pardon and were dismissed. Wyatt was condemned and executed, as it had been reported that on his examination he had accused the Lady Elizabeth and the Earl of Devonshire as accomplices. He took care on the scaffold before the whole people fully to acquit them of having any share in his rebellion. The Lady Elizabeth had been during some time treated with great harshness by her sister, and many studied instances of discouragement and disrespect had been practised against her. She was ordered to take place at court, after the Countess of Lennox and the Duchess of Suffolk, as if she were not legitimate. Her friends were discountenanced on every occasion, and while her virtues, which were now become eminent, drew her to the attendance of all the young nobility, and rendered her the favourite of the nation, the malevolence of the Queen still discovered itself every day by fresh symptoms, and obliged the Princess to retire into the country. Mary seized the opportunity of this rebellion, and hoping to involve her sister in some appearance of guilt, sent for her under a strong guard, committed her to the tower, and ordered her to be strictly examined by the council. But the public declaration made by Wyatt rendered it impractical to employ against her any false evidence which might have offered, and the princess made so good a defence that the queen found herself under a necessity of releasing her. In order to send her out of the kingdom, a marriage was offered her with the Duke of Savoy, and when she declined the proposal she was committed to custody under a strong guard at Woodstoke. The Earl of Devonshire, though equally innocent, was confined in Fotheringay Castle. But this rebellion proved still more fatal to the Lady Jane Grey, as well as to her husband. The Duke of Suffolk's guilt was imputed to her, and though the rebels and malcontents seemed chiefly to rest their hopes on the Lady Elizabeth and the Earl of Devonshire, the Queen, incapable of generosity or clemency, determined to remove every person from whom the least danger could be apprehended. Warning was given the Lady Jane to prepare for death, a doom which she had long expected, and which the innocence of her life, as well as the misfortunes to which she had been exposed, rendered nowise unwelcome to her. The Queen's zeal, under colour of tender mercy to the prisoner's soul, induced her to send divines, who harassed her with perpetual disputation, and even a reprieve for three days was granted her, in hopes that she would be persuaded during that time to pay, 
by a timely conversion some regard to her eternal welfare the lady jane had presence of mind in those melancholy circumstances not to defend her religion by all the topics then in use but also to write a letter to her sister in the greek language in which besides sending her a copy of the scriptures in that tongue she exhorted her to maintain in every fortune a like steady perseverance on the day of her execution her husband lord guildford desired permission to see her but she refused her consent and informed him by a message that the tenderness of their parting would overcome the fortitude of both and would too much unbend their minds from that constancy which their approaching end required of them their separation she said would be only for a moment and they would soon rejoin each other in a scene where their affections would be for ever united and where death disappointment and misfortunes could no longer have access to them or disturb their eternal felicity End of section 45, chapter 36, part 2.